Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees and on each episode I investigate a different, weird and wonderful subject. And on this episode we are going to investigate the real life case of the ghost police the supernatural long arm of the law, the phantom policemen, potentially phantom policemen, who were patrolling the streets of Wales in search of troublemakers. And if you were a troublemaker, the only thing worse than being nicked is being nicked by the ghost police. But before we begin this tale... I'd like to tell you very quickly about a spooky coincidence which happened to me last week and is the reason I am talking about the ghost police on this episode. My original plan was to talk about a haunted pub, but that plan has been ripped up and thrown out the window. Because last week, I was walking through the streets of Neath to meet a spooky friend on official spooky business. And... As I did so, it brought to mind a ghost story which took place in those very streets and which was recorded by a friend of mine, a fellow ghostly enthusiast and another publisher of books about Welsh ghosts, but in his case, specifically about the ghosts of Neath, and that is a man called Robert King. Now, nobody knows more about the ghosts of Neath the ghosts of Casteth Neath than Robert. He even does ghost walks and ghost tours around the town. But because of the way the world has been with the pandemic and everything, it's been well over a year, if not two years, since I've been in touch with Robert. And that reminded me I really should contact him at some point soon. Anyway, I met my spooky friend in Neath, and as we had a spooky conversation over a spooky coffee, he said that wouldn't it be nice if Robert King was here right now to help us? And I thought, well, that's a spooky coincidence because I was just walking through the streets thinking about one of his ghost stories, thinking about getting in touch with him. And for the first time in a long, long, long time, his name comes up in conversation. And then to top off the spookiness of the whole day of coincidences, when I arrived home, and checked my phone, there was a missed call on it from, you guessed it, Robert King. And I thought, if this isn't a sign from the paranormal universe that I should do an episode on the ghost police, I don't know what is. So here it is, the second episode based on Robert King's ghost stories. Regular listeners might remember that at Christmas time on episode 28, we looked at the ghosts of the haunted pub, the Castle Hotel in Neath. But for this one, we are heading out into the haunted streets in search of the ghost police. So let us now crack on with this terrifying tale. That's enough waffling and build-up to begin at the beginning, our real-life ghost story, as related to Robert, concerns a gentleman called Gerald Rees Thomas, who is from Kimla, just up the hill from Neath Town Centre. And our tale begins with Gerald walking home along those streets one chilly Friday night in January 1962. 
And the description which follows is very evocative. It, it almost brings to mind the words of a young Dylan Thomas who grew up just a few miles down the road in Swansea. But you can imagine the scene has been set. He's walking home. It's a dark, chilly night. The pubs have closed. There's this stench in the air of stale alcohol, of stale tobacco, of even worse, if you can imagine it. But that's coming up later. But it should be stressed, it should be made clear at this point that while there was drunkenness and merrymaking all around, or there had been earlier in the night, Gerald himself was not drunk walking home. This isn't the testimony of somebody who had had one too many. The reason he was walking back home late at night after pub closing is because he had been to his girlfriend's house or his fiancé's house which was near the Star Inn in Neath. Now, I will be referencing lots of places like this in Neath on this episode, lots of pubs and shops, and if you aren't familiar with Neath, I should point out that the town has changed dramatically since 1962. It continues to change dramatically to this very day. And I know there are some people out there who listen to this podcast and then like to find these places on Google Maps and things, or even, in some cases, go out investigating yourself. Well, in this case, you will have to do a little bit more digging into the past to find out exactly where these places were and what they might be called nowadays. But anyway, back to Gerald's account of that terrifying night. And he tells us that, having left his girlfriend or fiancé's house, he is walking home and there is a clear sky that night in 1962. And we are given a nice little insight into the way the minds of men worked in Neath at the time. Very, very practical people who certainly were not thinking about ghosts. And we are told that the reason he was not married yet, and if he had been married, he wouldn't be walking home from his fiancé's house. They'd be living together somewhere nice and warm, couched up, not encountering all these horrific ghosts which are coming up very soon. Spoiler alert. But the reason he was not married yet is purely for tax reasons. Because this haunting takes place in January and he was waiting until March to tie the knot because, to quote, ever practical, the couple were marrying before the end of the tax year to enable them to reclaim a year's paid tax. Yes, he's delaying his own matrimonial bliss to save a few pounds. As mentioned, this is a practical person, which is why he assumed there was nothing strange with what was about to happen. So as he's hurrying home from the direction of the Star Inn, he passed what is described as the Forbidden Mission Hall, turned into Old Market Street. It was at this point that the town clock chimed two o'clock. And there is always something creepy about a bell tolling in the morning. It brings to mind scenes from Dickens's A Christmas Carol, maybe, with the anticipation building, just waiting for that ghost to appear. But that bell tolled to remind Gerald it was well past his bedtime and that it was 2am in the morning. And the town was, as you'd expect at such an ungodly hour, 
totally deserted, except for the sound of Gerald's footsteps making their way home. As they turned into Water Street, the moon was high in the sky at this point, we are told. His path was illuminated by moonlight, and he was about 20 minutes away from home. And Gerald sets the scene so perfectly for what is about to happen that I'd like to directly quote from Robert's report. And we are told that the many public houses in this part of Neath had long thrown out their last customers, cleaned and locked up. He could still smell the aroma of stale beer as he dodged a pool of vomit outside the Shakespeare. So he's heading home on this moonlit night, dodging the sick on the street, and then he hears the sound of a door being shaken. It's a door handle being shook, which in and of itself, so I'm told, wasn't that strange a sound to hear in the 1960s at least, because part of the policeman's job was to make sure forgetful shopkeepers or innkeepers or whatever they might be had locked up their premises. They would go door to door, shaking the doors to make sure everything was safe and sound. And so Gerald, hearing this noise, must have assumed, I am not totally alone in Neath right now. There is also the Bobby doing his rounds. And sure enough, as Gerald stopped to light a cigarette specifically a woodbine, and as he stopped and popped that woodbine into his mouth, then he saw from the doorway of the pub, I am assuming it is the Shakespeare, but from the doorway there appeared, you guessed it, a policeman. A policeman who was dressed in a cape that hung from his neck to just above his waist. Which sounds more like... Batman than a policeman, doesn't it? Emerging from the doorway at night with a cape hanging down to his waist. But anyway, this is Neath, not Gotham. <laughs> Let's get back to the story. And Gerald, seeing the policeman and it being 2am in the morning, naturally assumed that he would ask him what he was doing wandering around at such a late hour or at the very least say, hello, good evening or good morning as it would be at that point. But the policeman said, nothing, not a word. Never mind the questions, there was no formalities either. He did not speak a single word. No, good evening, governor. No, Shamai Shurichi, not even I'm Batman, nothing. All he did was look at him and nodded with a faint smile, a nod and a faint smile, which, frankly, had now made Gerald feel a little bit nervous. I mean, he, he had no reason to be nervous of the policeman. He had done no wrong. He wasn't acting shifty. But the policeman's actions had made him feel like maybe he had done something wrong. And so Gerald, trying to lighten the mood, being his jolly self, attempted to make conversation himself. He said, hello, officer. So he spoke to the policeman, but the policeman said nothing. He did curiously cough and clear the phlegm from his throat. And while Gerald 
tried his best to strike up a conversation. He was clearly nervous, clearly stuttering. He said, quiet night, I've uh, been to my girlfriend's house. Still, there was no further sound from the policeman. But that town clock did chime up once more, which signalled that it was now a quarter past two in the morning. And I do like these these very specific details with the times which Gerald has remembered thanks to the town clock, because usually when people see ghosts, they aren't checking their watches on a regular basis, say. And if you did, for some mad reason, want to recreate this, you know exactly at what times he was encountering this unusual policeman who paid no attention to his words and instead stepped off the curb, continued to walk, continued to do the rounds and continued to shake the door handles of each property as he continued on his beat. So Gerald, turning his attention back to his cigarette, thought I'll leave him to it And as he could hear the door being rattled on Bush's sports shop, which I am assuming was right next to the Shakespeare, as he could hear the door being rattled, he put his hand into his pocket to get a match to light that woodbine. But when he realised he had no matches, he must have left them in Sarah's house, he decided to ask that slightly unresponsive policeman, who by now had moved on and was shaking the door of the chip shop next to Bush's. And this is the moment Gerald realised something was not okay. Because while that door was being rattled, while the handle was being shook, there was no longer any policeman. The door was seemingly shaking itself. As a result of which, he was frozen to the spot. Unsurprising, really, under the circumstances, he was frozen to the spot and stood there motionless, watching the door shake itself. And as the door stopped, he decided to do what any sensible person would do under the circumstances. He legged it. He decided to scarper. The spell was broken. He was no longer frozen. And he made a hasty exit. But... Before he had moved ten yards, we are told, the policeman appeared in front of him. There he was, just going about his duty, and as he looked at him, he could see the policeman just trying another doorway. So so maybe, maybe Gerald's imagination was was just going a bit wild. It was late, it was dark, and there, there was the policeman. He hadn't disappeared, he hadn't vanished, he was there, and... An interesting detail here, as with the times, is that, well, firstly, it shows us that these events must have left a lasting impression with Gerald, because he's talking about it quite specifically, decades afterwards. And there's one detail in particular that he recalls, and he tells us that as the policeman is standing there, an amber streetlight glanced across his cape. An amber streetlight glanced across the policeman. Not Batman, but the policeman's cape. Now, not only is that an incredible feat of memory, but it's also rather unusual for light 
to work that way in a ghost story, because we assume they must be some kind of ethereal, floaty-type thing that shouldn't really have any effect on the light. Well, in this case, yes, they do. Assuming, of course, that it is a ghost. And I think by the end of this tale, maybe you will side with Gerald and think that, yes, maybe that's indeed what we're dealing with. But back to it. There was light glancing across the cape and Gerald again tries to make conversation. And he says to the policeman, I missed you. I was going to ask you if you have a match. And as he said these words, as he asked the bobby for a light, something occurred to Gerald. I mean, he'd had this feeling that something was not quite right ever since he first laid eyes on that policeman. But at that moment, presumably because of the light, this is the first time he'd seen that policeman fully illuminated when he noticed something very peculiar about his clothing. Now, we mentioned earlier that he had that cape, like Batman, but that wasn't the unusual bit. It was everything else he was wearing, because it did not conform with what a policeman should be wearing. Or at least it, not what a modern-day, a contemporary, a 1960s policeman should have been wearing. In fact, as far as Gerald was concerned, he was wearing the clothing of what Gerald describes as a Victorian policeman. See, even when I am telling tales from living memory, I still find a way to sneak a Victorian ghost in somewhere. But this policeman seemed to be wearing the clothing of a Victorian man of the law. The kind of policeman who should have been chasing down Jack the Ripper, not drunkards in the swinging 60s in Neath. And it was at this point, when he realised what he was looking at, that his courage really began to fail. He thought the best thing to do might be to try and carry on with his conversation, very much a one-sided conversation, but to try and keep it going. But the words as they were coming out, he, he was stuttering and fumbling as he tried to speak. But somehow he managed to blurt out the words, have you got a match? But once more, the policeman ignored his request and simply continued doing the rounds. He carried on with his duty, checking the door handles of every establishment on his beat. And that is when things get even more weird. And we have another nice description from Robert, which I will quote. Because Gerald, of course, still had an unlit cigarette, that unlit woodbine in his mouth. He had failed to get a match from the only other person seemingly awake in Neath at the time. And the threads of tobacco of the unlit cigarette tasted bitter in his mouth. As he watched that policeman go from shop to shop until he seemingly looked as if he was going to walk into the wall of a shop when he walked straight through the shop. The policeman had seemingly walked through a solid wall and disappeared. Things were definitely 
getting strange, but the strangest thing of all happened a few minutes later, because as he watched that spot, the policeman re-emerged, and not alone. There were now three of them. He had returned through the wall, had materialised with two colleagues in tow. And the three policemen all stared at Gerald. And this time, one of them did indeed break the silence, but only for two words, followed by an almighty high-pitched sound. Gazing at Gerald, they shouted, Stop, police! And the shrill sound of their whistles filled the air. Now, one of these additional policemen, we are told, had a handlebar moustache. That's a nice little Victorian touch there. But Gerald was terrified of, what well, not, not just of the moustache, he was terrified of the three seemingly ghostly policemen shouting and running at him. And terrified, he walked backwards away from them. And maybe giving us a little bit too much detail here, but stumbling against the curb, he stepped in a pool of vomit. But the good news is the vomit wasn't so slimy that he fell over. He did manage to regain his balance. But as a result, his three pursuers, those three policemen who had emerged through a solid brick wall, one of which had a big handlebar moustache, they had now bridged the gap and they were right on top of him. And once more, they broke their silence but with just the single word this time. Police, they shouted. And by this point, Gerald had, frankly, had enough. And who can blame him? He decided, never mind going home. I am going to run as quickly as possible back to my sweetheart's home, back to Sarah's home. And as he fled down the dark streets of Neath, he only allowed himself to turn back once, just once, when he saw what is described as a faint glow at the crossroads of Navi's Square. That's the square he'd crossed before turning into the street where all the action had happened. A faint glow at the crossroads. And you would assume that what is now well past two o'clock in the morning, a faint glow would have been very noticeable in the dark winter sky. And that was enough. That was the final straw. He ran until he was breathless, until he arrived at his destination. Back to Sarah's house, where he banged the door and shouted until he woke up the house. Probably woke up the street by the sounds of it, but woke up the house and they let him in. And so they, well, I don't, I don't know if they believed his story or not, but they certainly gave him safe haven from the trio of ghostly Victorian policemen. All of which brings us to the end of another creepy little Welsh ghost story. And as mentioned, that tale was originally preserved by Robert King, who has published many, many books on the ghosts of Neath. And if that's something you have an interest in, you could even join him on one of his 
ghost walks or pick up one of the books from all of the usual book type places. And while you're at it, why not pick up one of my Ghost of Wales books at the same time? Get the two together. But that's enough shameless plug-in for one episode. And I am sure we will revisit some of Robert's other tales at some point in the future. Who knows, I might even get the man himself to pop on and have a chat with us. And as always, if you don't want to miss those episodes when they appear, please consider hitting the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode ever. And as always, if you have any thoughts, any comments, any ideas, anything at all you'd like to say or get off your chest, I'm quite easy to find online. I'm quite easy to track down on all of the main social media sites. And it's always lovely to hear from people. All of which just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varyaun and Grando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast. It's the best, it's the beautiful, it's the only Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. Until next time, no star.